Dripping down science. The naked scientists. This week, we'll see millions of visitors from around the world flock to the city of London in the UK, hoping to catch a glimpse of the London 2012 Olympic Games. Rather than the sights of Big Ben or Buckingham Palace, their eyes will be firmly focused on the 10,500 athletes competing in one of the 26 sports now part of the competition. I'm Mira Senthi Lingam, and in this special edition of The Naked Scientists, we'll be exploring the role science and technology can play in these sports today. We'll be meeting the trainers, scientists and athletes using the developments in this field to help them or their team win gold. Or in some cases, like British Olympic rowing champion Steve Redgrave, five consecutive golds. Rowing is an endurance-based sport. If you don't have the lung capacity, the VO2 uptake of transferring that oxygen into uh, uh, energy that goes into the red blood cells to, to feed the muscles from that point of view, is you're not going to be uh, uh, very efficient from that way. So the science behind it is becomes immense of, of training, preparation, um, monitoring, of trying to improve levels all the time. When I started back in the 70s, is there was none of this. How important has scientific understanding or just the science and the science tests been in your development both as training you as a rower but how important do you also think it is today in say the current team and their training i think it's it's hugely important within in my um, background since i've retired it's moved on from that point of view but sport everyone seems to get faster all the time they may not get faster every time they go out or uh, uh, within a year or even an olympiad of the four-year cycle but over a period of time times get quicker athletes get quicker so you've got to use every aspect so uh, uh, of diet training the science behind it all all plays a part of being a better and faster athlete than uh, than we were before the athletes now 12 years on from i started are performing faster times than when when i did well is that because they're better uh, sporting specimens maybe uh, but maybe that the, the science behind of what they're doing has become more slick and improved from that point of view and I think there's still a lot of psychological training that can be done. I think our minds are probably our weakest element of, of our body. So it's not always just about training the muscles. It's about training the mind to be able to, to cope with the, the, the different aspects of training and the knowledge that's coming in. So we're always going to get faster. And what do you think your kind of best traits are that made you an Olympic medal-winning rower? I think uh, in the early days, I had a physique that really suited the rowing at, at that time. Matthew ended up being a, a better specimen than, than me within, within the sport, but I became mentally tougher. You can't just think it, it's all about science, it's all about training, it's all about the mental side of it. It's a percentage of all of it. And to be a, a great athlete, you've got to be able to take all those aspects on. Five-time Olympic gold medalist, Steve Redgrave. Now this week, we're investigating what it takes to become an elite athlete. Because as Steve mentioned, as important as innate talent is, it's not enough to make it at the top. A good understanding of how your body works and responds to exercise and to your particular sport is key, which is where the work of exercise physiologists like Chris Easton from Kingston University comes in. The typical things that we measure are things like heart rate, 
energy expenditure, the amount of oxygen that, that one uses during exercise, um, lactate production, that kind of thing, to monitor physiological status, physical fitness, uh, and then that can feed back into to training programmes to help improve performance. So people generally know that, say, things like your recovery rate, so how well your heart rate perhaps recovers to normal after exercise, can be a good indicator of fitness. But what's the step up, I guess, for elite sport? What, what are the types of things you have to monitor there? If you talk about endurance running in particular, one of the, the things that will be measured is something called running economy or running efficiency. And that is the amount of oxygen that one uses during a particular running speed. Um, and that's really nice for, for tracking change before and after a training programme, um, before and after um, altitude acclimatisation, for example. And other things like something we, we call critical velocity or critical power. That's the, the maximum speed or power that one, one can maintain uh, indefinitely. I've been shown to be quite good predictors of particularly endurance performance other markers things like vo2 max which is the the aerobic capacity the maximum amount of oxygen that you can consume in a single minute have been shown to be reasonable predictors of performance but but less so than things like critical velocity so really training needs to be quite homed in on what a particular athlete is training in to really advance them to the elite level Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the, the sports scientists, the coaches, nutrition staff tailor their, their programmes specifically for those athletes uh, in, in the different sports. Everybody at London 2012 is going to have their eyes firmly placed on Usain Bolt. What is someone like his training schedule going to be to get him going, I guess, as fast as possible? It's difficult to see exactly what he's doing. They do tend to keep these things fairly secretive, but they'll be looking at things like the sort of biomechanical assessment of his of his gait, the forces that he can produce, uh, particularly out the blocks, his reaction time, and of course, you know, the things that he'll be working on uh, predominantly will be his strength and his speed. Those are the two kind of primary factors that will determine how fast that, that one can run the 100 metres. So comparing sprinting to other sports, could you give some examples of sports that would have very different physiological factors monitored? Three good examples to compare would be something like running the marathon, um, which you know world records are just over two hours for males. Rowing, which the time to complete the 2,000 metre track will be somewhere between 360 and 240 seconds. And weightlifting, which you know really only requires a, a one to two second um, maximal effort so you know if you look at the uh, endurance sports um, the things that will be monitored and measured there will, will very much focus on the, the cardiovascular system um, the aerobic energy systems VO2 max, critical velocity um, the, something called the maximal lactate steady state and the lactate threshold measurements as well uh, whereas things like the rowing will will look more at the, the maximum power that, that one can generate. And uh, weightlifting, they'll look at measurements of strength and, of course, the amount of, of, of mass they have in comparison to um, fat. Um, so that is the, the lean muscle mass. Those parameters will be fundamental in, in, in lifting heavy weights. So with the things like lactate for endurance sports, this is something you don't want to build up because it could hinder performance. Well, I mean, that, that is a, a little bit of a myth. Uh, in actual fact, lactate can be uh, a positive thing. So, um, you know, lactate um, is formed from glucose, uh, which breaks down to something called pyruvate, uh, and then broken down further into lactate. And that lactate can actually go in the reverse direction. So that lactate can actually be used to generate substrate for, for exercise metabolism. The thing that may have a negative impact is the, the hydrogen ions, the acid component that's produced along with the lactate. Um, increased production of, of hydrogen ions of acid can reduce the, the efficiency of the muscle contractions. 
And so how would this be monitored and tweaked to improve performance? Well, one of the things that you can measure is something called the lactate threshold. Um, and that is basically the point at which lactate begins to build up in the blood. And what you're using lactate for is really a marker of the increase in hydrogen ions. It's just that lactate is much easier to measure. You can use it, you'll measure it using portable systems, taking a very small amount of capillary blood. Um, and additionally, we can also get an idea of the, the lactate threshold simply by measuring your expired air during exercise. So one of the consequences uh, of an increased production of hydrogen ions, of acid, is that the body's response to that is to produce something called sodium bicarbonate. Um, that go then goes through a reaction that in the end result produces water and carbon dioxide. So when we pick up that increased production of carbon dioxide, we know that that is going to be close to the point of, of what we call lactate threshold. And is this threshold something that can be moved? Absolutely, yeah. So you know, one of the, the common responses to a training programme is that you shift the lactate threshold to the right. Um, so what that means is that the lactate threshold occurs at a higher running speed or a higher cycling power. Clearly, that's going to be beneficial to the athlete because obviously they can then maintain a higher speed or higher power um, before that build-up of lactate and hydrogen ions. Chris Easton from Kingston University, who we'll be hearing from again later in the programme, when we visit his lab to see just how an athlete's physiology is monitored. But first, we meet one of the scientists applying this scientific insight to Team GB, ensuring they take to the tracks, pools, water and more in peak condition over the next fortnight. Hi, my name's Dr Steve Ingham. I'm the Head of Physiology at the English Institute of Sport. As an applied sports scientist, it's our job to bridge fundamental research with the coach and athlete's day-to-day -day practice and training to try and individualise that physiological concept so that it can work for them, um, so that they can improve their physiological capabilities, run faster, be stronger and so on. Is there any particular point, say, during an athlete's training or any particular part of a training programme that's really, I guess, been influenced by scientific input? There's lots of ideas that make sense, but a coach might not like it. So you bring something f new forward and it feels like innovation, feels like change. Uh, probably a good example of that for us uh, recently has been changing the warm-up just prior to a competition. Now, athletes and coaches are quite protected around that because they don't really want to go messing around with different types of uh, fancy warm-ups. We've introduced a, a new high-intensity warm-up method across sports that's only really been possible through good scientific data, objective testing, and then showing the data to the athletes and coaches. Um, athletes and coaches suddenly, suddenly clicked and twigged, yeah, I get this idea now, let's try it out in training, then progress that through to a minor competition and then into a big competition. See the performance data, and then that, that should speak for itself. And so did it make a particularly big difference? Well, a performance gain of about 1% difference to a runner, for example, that's, that's five metres or so. It's, it's a lot. Um, they don't have to, to work particularly hard to achieve it and, it, and it works in the right direction. So I guess all of this knowledge and this scientific kind of input, how big a role does that play today and should it play as big a role as it is? If a coach or an athlete trains or prepares in a certain way that's based on just superstition or habit, that doesn't really cut it in this day and age. You've got to have good evidence as to why you're doing a certain thing. We've got to get smarter about Im improving our performance standards because other countries are, and they're benefiting from scientific input and reducing the probability that they're going to fail. 
perhaps on the flip side you could say maximizing or optimizing their chance at achieving so i think it's it's great investment um, some of the discoveries and breakthroughs can also echo down to the the scientific and exercise literature also hopefully it will lead to, to more success the athletes using these training and testing methods are certainly hoping these methods bring success. Hi, I'm Katie Skelton, I'm 24 and I'm part of the Great Britain Synchronised Swimming Team. Synchronised swimming is like built up of many different um, things. For example, it's like dancing in the water, so um, you need to be able to sort of move to music well. Um, you need to be very flexible, so we do a lot of stretching in that area. But you also need to be really fit and strong. So we work a lot in the gym, doing weights and a lot of fitness. So we do a lot of speed swimming, like swimming up and down. Um, so there's loads of components to make you a good synchronised swimmer. And what about, I guess, your actual knowledge of how your body works? Um, physiology has helped us with learning about our body over the years. For example, we do the VO2 max test. This is really important because we need to be fit to be able to swim our routine. We also do lactate testing which um, is really useful for us to do like when we're in training. They've also done it when we were at the Europeans to see whether the intensity and the lactic acid is the same during training and competing, see whether there's any difference. Um, they've also done it on uh, other teams as well to see you know, the variables within the different teams and different countries, looking at what level um, you know, the winners to where we're ranked to see what the difference is to help us improve. And have you found that quite useful? So has it led to improvements in your performance? Yes, because um, you realise like, when it's best to do sort of physical training, when it's to go easier. They know when we're going to really build up lactate acid and you know, is the routine hard enough because they will need to be able to reach a certain lactate point. Stuff. So it's really helped us improve. And also seeing a difference are the Team GB Adaptive Rowers. Hi, my name's Pam Ralph and I'm in the Legs, Trunk and Arms Mix Cox 4. That's a boat with two men, two women and a cox and we row over a thousand metres. Rowing is an endurance sport so I wouldn't say that I was the most powerful of athletes but when it sort of gets hard I just keep going. Long arms, long legs and being quite tall I think is probably the best physical traits that you need. Do you work with physiologists to really get an insight into what's going on inside your body whilst you're training? Yeah, so we get lactate tested during um, endurance training. We have testing called skinfold testing, which is essentially measuring how much body fat you have on your body. Um, so, for example, if I was to put on weight, but my skinfold number was to go down, then that would mean that the weight I've put on has been muscle mass rather than fat. Um, which is obviously good to, to have a lot more muscle if you want to be a professional athlete. Um, another test that we can do is a um, VO2 max test. So there's really a lot tested. You're getting blood samples and so on out whilst you're rowing, but you're also tested in the lab. Yeah, we're tested in the lab and we're also tested when we're on camp to make sure that we're hydrated. We have to do um, urines urine tests every single morning to make sure that we're fully hydrated and and that's quite useful to see because i think it's one percent drop in hydration equals a five percent drop in aerobic fitness or something like something along those lines so i think that having um information available to you in sport isn't necessarily essential i think that if you do the training your body's going to get fitter but i think it really gives you an idea and an insight into what your body's capable of and what stresses you can put your body under before it breaks Pam Ralph and before her Victoria Skelton from Team GB and before them Steve Ingham, Head of Physiology at the English Institute of Sport. 
and you can hear more from them and other athletes and trainers by visiting the Physiological Society's Understanding Life website, where the uses of physiology and training are explored further, online at understanding-life.org. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. I'm Mira Senthilingam, and you're listening to a special sporting edition of The Naked Scientists. We're heading out to the track this week to see how the Usain Bolts and more locally Mark Cavendish of the world are incorporating scientific insight into their day-to-day training and preparation for London 2012, taking place this week. We heard earlier from Kingston University's Chris Easton on the various physiological traits that are monitored and improved upon at the elite level. But Chris also took me on a visit to his lab. A lab filled with bikes and treadmills, all with many forms of machinery attached, to see some testing in action. Unfortunately, not on Usain Bolt, but instead on myself. We do most of our performance testing uh, in here for research, consultancy work and for teaching as well. Um, And obviously for for runners, we'd, we'd use the treadmills for those performance tests. So this particular treadmill doesn't look like the average one at a gym, so it's got a much bigger screen, a variety of settings and two computer screens next to it. Yeah, that's right. So you know, this, this treadmill that we, we can use for uh, incremental exercise tests, um, so we can very quickly change the speed and the gradient. And what we have alongside it is a, a metabolic analyzer, a device that will allow us to measure your expired air to determine how much oxygen you're using and your energy expenditure during exercise. So initially, that, it looks like just a box with a variety of wires coming out. How would you actually measure that on someone? What we do is we uh, will attach a face mask to you uh, and we'll actually at- attach you to the system, as it were. So the, the wires will be connected to your face mask. Um, we'll measure the, the concentration of oxygen and carbon dioxide in your expired air uh, and also your breathing rate as well, so how much air you're actually breathing out uh, with each breath. And so how fast does this treadmill actually go? And is that representative of how fast, say, an endurance runner would run? Uh, I mean, this treadmill only goes up to 20 kilometres an hour. Um, Our other other treadmill goes up to 40 kilometres an hour. But to give you an example with this one, um, I mean, this wouldn't even be able to get up to the speed of of, uh, the world record marathon pace, um, which is run close to 21 kilometres per hour. And I think if you took most even fairly fit individuals off the street, uh, they'd be lucky to maintain that pace for more than a few seconds. Chris, I've got my trainers on. I'm going to have an initial go anyway. So what are the kinds of things you would expose someone to? So I'm just getting on now. So what we do is we do an incremental exercise test. We'd start you off at a fairly low, eight kilometres an hour or so, uh, and then we'll increase either the speed or the gradient to the point where you can't keep up with the speed on the treadmill. So we're not getting to that. You're going to put it on the initial eight um, kilometres an hour. That's right. We'll just do the very uh, initial stages of the test, collect some of your measurements, and we can see how how, how they are. Uh, just to warn you, the, the speed does start fairly suddenly, so be prepared for, for the, the treadmill to start. Okay. <laughs> You're right. So I've got a heart rate monitor on at the moment already, um, but as well as this, you want to look at what's going in and out of my breath. That's right. So we'll, uh, we'll measure how much oxygen uh, you're using, how much carbon dioxide you're producing, uh, as well as your, your breath, your, your, vent- your ventilation rate as well. It's actually quite a fast-paced walk. You can, uh, yes, I would, I'd probably say it's a, a light jog as opposed to a walk, yeah. There you go. Maybe more comfortable. Actually, that's better. 
Okay, so I have the face mask on now. It's very tight. In fact, when I breathe out... Oh, no, yeah, no air is leaking out. Yes, that's great. So it means we've got a complete seal. So all the air that you're breathing out will be uh, assessed by the analyzer. Just three to five minutes on the treadmill was enough time for Chris to get a range of information about my body's response to exercise and the general state of my fitness, which, although nowhere near that of an elite athlete... Slow the speed of the treadmill down uh, and I'll bring you down back to a walk. ...wasn't too laughable. <sighs> OK, so the face mask's off, but now you need a blood sample. That's right, so what we'll do is we'll uh, collect a very, very small sample of capillary blood uh, and we'll assess that for lactate concentration. Um, so my fingers you need? Yes, that's right. right. You're squeezing my blood out of my finger now. Yes, OK, so I've just, uh, uh, I'm just using a, a portable analyzer um, to collect that very small sample of blood. So this is essentially like a, a little box the size of maybe two matchboxes together with a small strip sticking out, which is what you put my blood onto. That's right, yeah. So really good because it allows us to do a lot of these measurements in the field. So uh, at the side of the track, at the, at the swimming pool, in an athlete's natural environment, as opposed to having to ask them to come into the lab and do these things on the treadmill. So whilst we're waiting for the results, say, of my blood test, um, you've got a, a variety of kind of statistics about my performance just at this basic level already there. So it's this, I'm assuming, from my face mask and so on. That's right. So we, we took some very basic measurements and looking firstly at the, the VO2, which is the oxygen consumption, how much oxygen you're using uh, every minute. Uh, and that's telling us that you're using 2.2 litres of oxygen uh, for every minute of exercise. Uh, and to put that in a slightly different way, you're using 32 milligrams of oxygen uh, for every kilogram of your body mass. Um, so that's, that's nice because it allows us to compare between, between people of different body sizes. And how would that compare, say, to an athlete? An elite athlete, you'd expect that their uh, VO2, their oxygen consumption, would actually be lower because they're more efficient. So they would require less oxygen, less energy to produce the same running speed. So how much, I guess, lower would theirs be? Uh, I mean, it's difficult to say for sure, depending on the athlete, um, but you might expect theirs to be somewhere maybe f uh, 20 milligrams per kilogram of, per minute or so. And you have some other figures noted down there as well. What, what are these? So something is 0.74. Yeah, so, so that's a, a measurement called the respiratory exchange ratio, or respiratory quotient. Uh, and very simply, it's just a ratio of the amount of carbon dioxide that you're producing uh, to the amount of oxygen that you're using. Now, that's very, very useful because, well, firstly, it can give us uh, an indicator of your metabolic rate if we take the measurement during rest. Um, but also, it lets us know the type of fuel that you're actually using for that exercise. Um, so your respiratory exchange ratio was 0.74, uh, which indicates that you're predominantly using fat um, for that uh, eight kilometres an hour, which is, which is obviously a, you know, a, a good thing. thing. Yeah, and, and that's what you'd expect. You know, as the, the intensity is low, you use more fat. As you progressively increase the intensity, you use more carbohydrate, and consequently you get an increase in this respiratory exchange ratio. And so I think my blood tests are now ready. Yes. So we measured the lactate concentration in your blood and it gave us a value of 1.8 millimoles uh, per litre. So that's 1.8 millimoles of lactate per litre of blood. And that's very, very slightly raised from, from, from resting values, but certainly indicates that your, your, the intensity of exercise that you did there um, was below your lactate threshold. So we haven't seen that large rise in lactate that we'd expect to occur after the lactate threshold. And so somebody, say, now walks in through the door, who's, that's a good athlete. What do you need to do all in all to 
get them to hopefully be an elite athlete? question is almost impossible to answer. I mean, it's only such a small percentage ever actually make it to that elite level. As physiologists, we can contribute to that in some way by measuring some of these parameters during exercise. But ultimately, there are so many other factors from psychology and genetics uh, that will contribute to whether somebody truly does make an elite athlete. If there was one training program that made everyone great, then you know, you'd have millions of elite athletes. Um, and, and of course, that's not the reality. Unfortunately, although I was reasonably fit... Chris didn't see much hope of me being a GB representative at Rio 2016. That was Chris Easton from Kingston University. The buzz and thrill of a sporting event can provide a real adrenaline rush when it's an athlete's time to perform. But with thousands of eyes directly on them and many billions more on television screens around the world, Performance becomes about mind as well as body. And when your mind gets stage fright, things can go horridly wrong. Thankfully, sports psychologists are on hand to help, as naked scientist Ben Valsler found out talking to Dave Collins from the University of Central Lancashire. To be honest, I think that the, uh, the psychology is the absolute paramount issue. It's the paramount issue because generally... When you get to the top level, most people are as fit as each other. Most people are as committed as each other. Once you get into the the modern systems of institutes and academies around the world, they're well advised on nutrition. They're well serviced on technique. They've got similar equipment. What now makes the difference is what's going on between their ears as they train. So the time that they spend in preparation and, of course, then on the day of execution. The other thing to recognise is that all those other disciplines have knock-ons into the mental side so that what sorts of training I'm doing and whether I perceive it's the right sort of training or not will actually determine in, in no small part its effect. And if I'm confident that if I'm eating the right things and doing the right things, then that's likely to have a psychological knock-on as well. So we think of sports psychology as being about getting in the zone, you know, psyching yourself out just before the race or whatever event it is that you're taking part in. But clearly it actually starts a lot earlier than that. It's almost like if you're going to the competition and you're very, very confident in the level of your preparation, you're very, very confident that no stone has been left unturned, then probably getting yourself into the zone and psyching yourself up for the day is something that you don't need to do. You know, if, if all of a sudden things haven't gone as well, then that's when you need to get there. So you've mentioned confidence a couple of times there. What are the tricks, what are the psychological states that we need to get athletes into? It's easier to quickly describe what might get in the way. Let's say you're a tennis player. You shouldn't need to think about how you execute a forehand topspin. You shouldn't need to think about what sorts of things you're going to do. You might need to plan your tactics and spot what's going on. So there's a level of consciousness and unconsciousness that needs to apply to your techniques. Execute techniques unconsciously. Think about carefully about the skills and the tactics that you want to apply. Um, and it's where that cut-off line goes and therefore how, uh, how effective you are at deploying the tools that you've developed, which is a big factor. Now, the confidence comes in when all of a sudden you're going, little doubts creep in to your ability to be able to execute, maybe under these circumstances, maybe against this particular player, maybe it's the last jump of your, in, your, in your sequence of six and you've got to hit it to win the medal or not. And that's when the manipulations that you described earlier 
come in, the manipulations of trying to get someone to be in the zone, to think about being in the zone. And what sort of changes do we see physiologically in response to the psychological difference? Because presumably there must be changes in order to enable people to perform better. The mind's linked to the rest of the body, and it's something that's often often overlooked. So when someone's executing well, just in a qualitative sense, if you watch their performance, we'll use words like, they seem to have a lot of time, or things seem to happen you know, quite smoothly and quite easily for them. There is an effortlessness to a peak performance that is about executing the exact muscles in the exact ways in the exact sequence with exactly the level of force you need and no more. Now, if I were to contrast that with most people learning how to do skills, for example, a learner skier would be very, very stiff, very, very jerky, movements very hard, furrowed brow of concentration, as opposed to a top-class skier, which would be very smooth, very flowing, low effort, enjoyable. Those are the sorts of technical differences which anybody can see that show that someone is executing to the plan. Because the conscious control is grosser, cruder, and less finely tuned than the unconscious control. So when you, you superimpose conscious control on a move that you can do quite well unconsciously, what tends to happen is that that part of the movement is exaggerated, overdone, or the timing goes out, and as a result, the whole suffers. And how can we actually start to evaluate this in a more quantitative way? What are the tricks that we can use to gather evidence about the best approaches? Or is it always going to be a qualitative thing where one approach is best for one person and another approach for someone else? It is always going to be individual because what people are doing and how they are thinking and what sorts of happening things are happening to them is very individual. For example, the received wisdom in target shooting is that most people will pull the trigger or release the arrow in what's called the interbeat interval, the pause between the, the bump, 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 bump that you get from your heart, the reason being there's less tremor in the body. So if you were to turn up with that sort of received wisdom, what you would do is to, to train people to become aware of where their heartbeat was and say, what I want you to do is to squeeze the trigger, is to release the arrow in the interbeat interval. Research we've done shows that five out of the six top pistol shots in the country actually squeeze the trigger on the beat. So all of a sudden, what received wisdom and lots of science actually shows doesn't necessarily apply to an individual. Therefore, you have to make sure it's individualised. We've heard a lot about the new technologies that people use to for very high-speed footage, for example, and are there any technologies that you can learn from or that you can use to help people learn a bit more about their psychological state? I think it's very useful to be able to quantify this, this mystical in-the-zone type experience. So my own work with athletes, I've used electroencephalography, I've attached electrodes to people's skulls, measuring what's going on and able to point to them that, okay, you are going to execute better in this sort of state. What that feels like to you is a, a sort of a, a, a very focused but unaware of what's going on on the outside type of situation. Now, that would be very appropriate for a weightlifter, for a shot putter, for someone who's executing what we call a closed skill, a skill where they're in complete control of what's happening. They don't have to react to an opponent. 
you might measure electromyography, you might stick electrodes onto their muscles to see which muscles are firing in what sequence, in what way. You certainly would use three-dimensional analysis of their movement, what's called kinematics, to look at, again, the sort of the patterns of movement that they execute, and also to actually show them that when they're in a zone, this is what's happening, and that actually they're moving faster for possibly less muscular effort, and that helps them to acquire the skill necessary to put themselves there and keep themselves there when the, uh, when the pressure's on. Dave Collins there, Professor of Coaching and Performance at the University of Central Lancashire, talking to Ben Valsler. Now, as well as biological improvements, many of today's sporting successes are down to advances in technology as well. Professor Guangzhong Yang is directing the Esprit Project at Imperial College London, where his team are developing a network of body sensors to track every move an athlete makes. And I caught up with him at the Science Museum in London to find out more about how they work. Traditionally for sports science, the performance measurement is done in the laboratory setting. In those laboratory settings typically involve large equipment, big markers attached to the body, and for general sports science, it's fine in terms of understanding how body functions and so on. But for elite athletes, you want something that is small, non-intrusive, figuring out ways of how do we improve the uh, consistency and also competitive advantage of the athletes. So I guess there are kind of two benefits, really. You're getting people out of the lab and in, in their real setting, so you can actually see how they would perform, say, and you're also trying to be as unobtrusive as possible. That's correct, yes. So we're in the Science Museum at the moment where you've just launched a temporary exhibition in their antenna section and we've got one of your sensors here just in front of us and it essentially just looks really like a hearing aid but a bright blue one. (laughs) That's right. This particular sensor is called the Airworm Activity Recognition Sensor. Now let me ask you, if I want to detect a problem with your ankle or your knee or the way how you walk or run, where would you position your sensor? I'm thinking around the ankle or the joints there, but this one won't go there. That's right, yeah. So this sensor that is put behind the ear and is exactly to measure that. Think for a moment how our human body actually controls our balance and motion. Where's our sensor positioned? Um, Around, yes, in the ear, because essentially that's what balance and things like that, isn't it? That's right. In the inner ear, you have semicircular canals to control the balance and so on. And so our design is very much a replication or by design that will use the sensor, put behind the ear and monitor your gait, which is how you walk or how you run, and also other biomotion uh, factors or indices. So if you have a problem with your ankle or your knee, you actually will try to compensate that and to elevate the pain and therefore changes your gait. And use this, then you'll be able to pick up those signs. If I had this ear sensor on right now, mm-hmm. and I'm just I'm walking along, mm-hmm. just in a straight line, what mm-hmm. can you monitor about me in this moment? So this will measure what we call ground reaction force. So when you walk, you have the heel strike, then you transfer the body weight, and then you have the toe off, then you swing, and so on. And with this, you can actually see this waveform, that uh, the two peaks, as you see here. Typically, you have to measure this in the laboratory. You either use a pressure in so are you sensor putting your shoes or you use the force plates that uh, which are tend to be expensive and the advantage here is that you can do this in free living environment 
And is it mainly this kind of movement, so things like gait, or are there other factors being monitored too? It can also be used for monitoring your body trunk motion, so the general posture. Of course, then when you add more sensors onto your body, you can actually recreate all your arm movements and also all the detailed postures, almost like what you do for animation. The thing here is that you can see the evolution of those sensors that we have made over the last three, four years. It really has shrunk by 500 times. You see the little sensor towards the right, which is the size of your small fingernail. Yeah, just less than a centimeter squared. That's right. Yeah, it will measure all these things. It's got the wireless transmission, and also it has onboard processing, and also can interface other sensors as well. How really does the sensor work? So it's on my ear, and mm. it's got this chip inside monitoring so many things, but mm. how, I guess, does it monitor all of this? In this one, that has got a very simple sensor. Is it a 3-axis accelerometer. So it's a sensor that will measure both your static and also dynamic inertia. Your orientation with regard to the gravity when you are static. Also, when you are moving, you, when you have acceleration, it will simply impose that with the gravity. So it's a combination of both what we call the static and also dynamic inertia. With this, then you can induce motion information. So in, for instance, if you integrate that, it will give you the velocity information. And if you dare to integrate again, it will give you the position and so on. And so I'm imagining that this is particularly useful for sports where people are kind of moving just their body and, and things like gait and speed perhaps are important. So runners? For runners, absolutely. Also for others as well. Cycling and uh, other sports, rowing and so on. But, uh, it has many applications. But as well as, say, the ear sensor, you are developing a sensor network, really. So next to this one, there is a very clear patch with a distinct chip in the middle of it. That's right. This particular sensor is to uh, measure you know, biochemical information, in this case the lactate from the sweat, as a surrogate marker that uh, look at well, you know, muscle exertion and so on. So lactate is something that people produce, I guess, as they do a lot of exercise, and this is a way to monitor how much they're producing. That's right. This is the byproduct it generates. And is sweat quite a good, accurate kind of summary of how much lactate someone makes? In true fact, it's not, because sweat can be contaminated by a lot of other things that, uh, you know, in terms of biochemical content, in terms of pH, lactate, and so on. But this is the very convenient way of getting that biochemical information. Of course, that, you know, joint blood is not something that you want to do for athletes regularly. Will there be eventually a variety of sensors? Because it's mentioned that the Esprit Project will be looking at a range of sports and, and a range of types of factors in sports. So as well as someone's speed or gait, um, mm. things like wheelchair motion or rugby collisions. Absolutely, yeah. We have developed a very small sensor that can be used for track the wheelchair clip onto the axle, look at the training power output and also its position in the court. And all this information is very helpful in terms of looking at the force exertion as well as the, potentially the tactics by the athletes. You can you know, integrate the sensor as a patch to be worn by the, on the body or into the garment or into a helmet and, and all sorts. With these sensors, have they been trialled, say, on any athletes? And ha- have you seen, I guess, the way that they can benefit training? Yeah, we are you know, using this for a range of uh, uh, training exercises and things. It's really the direct benefit is that you get the real-time information and also you get quantitative information. The sensors itself will not be able to make a 
medalist because it is really the work of uh, the athletes, the coaches, and all the support team. What we are contributing here is really one small facet of the entire training regime, really, to help to maintain the competitive uh, advantage. Professor Guangzhong Yang from Imperial College London. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. When it comes to technology and the use of technology in sport, there's one sporting event that's miles ahead. In fact, so far ahead, it's lapped the others many times. Formula One. And one company pioneering developments on the racetrack are McLaren, who in recent years have also spun out McLaren Applied Technologies to spread their technology to other sports as well. I visited their headquarters in Surrey in the UK and met programme director Caroline Hargrove to get up to speed. Well, welcome to the McLaren Technology Centre. OK, so we're just about to enter our boulevard that is also a showcase of some of our old winning cars. Before us is a, an array of a range of McLaren cars. We start with the very first Bruce McLaren winning car that he used at the age of 15 and he rebuilt and it's a, an old Austin 7 and it sets the tone to show how motor racing has changed <laughs> over the last 40 years. Very different, it's gone from a, a very much a big kind of box-like shape to very slick, much closer to the ground, much wider. It's just even one look through our boulevard how aerodynamics have changed over the last 20 years. How big a part does science and technology and engineering play in F1? It's all about science and technology from every nut and bolt to the driver, what they eat, what they do as fitness programmes. Everything is monitored and detailed because actually each team is quite large for two drivers when you think about it. So this, And it's mainly, largely, mechanics and engineers that, who are obsessed with the detail because it's about the detail. And I guess because there are many aspects to, I guess, Formula One. So there's the materials you use to make the cars, there's the design of the cars, there's monitoring the movements and speeds of the cars and actually then also monitoring the driver inside. Every single aspect must be done very carefully. So I'd say it's well known in Formula One that carbon fibre has been uh, transformational and it, and it has been pushed to different limits through what Formula One has done. Then, of course, the aerodynamics, huge amounts of time and effort spent in wind tunnels and it's especially in CFD, which means computational dynamics. So that's a lot of, of computational power that is now available and makes that possible. And then, of course, what you learn from that gets into the design and the best suspension to cope with all of that. And then, of course, the driver has to drive this. So all the systems, the operational systems, the data, the telemetry to monitor what's happening... It's quite a long range of, of tasks that need to happen to make of a car driving uh, and winning a championship at the other end. Walking down the boulevard, you've got a, a range of cars as they've developed over the years here at McLaren. So let's just stop by this one here. So we've reached um, the more modern cars. So there's a range here stemming from 2007 onwards. These are looking very different. What have been the main developments to this car then, I guess, in terms of material, design... Well, it, interestingly, by the time that we're in this era, it's aerodynamics that is overwhelmingly different. At the moment, 
for example, um, we've got movable rear wings. There are areas where the drivers are allowed to move their, their rear wing in order to reduce the drag that they provide. Now, you want the rear wing when you brake, so it gives you the downforce. But when you're going in straight line, it brings you drag. So there's a drag reduction system, this DRS, that when you, you press your button, it changes the wing angle. It gives you no drag or very little drag, so you're getting faster straight line speed. But then you flip it back up again when you want to brake and you need a downforce. The key is um, the complexity of the steering wheel. There's a lot of buttons in there from what Absolutely. I can see. If we, if we lean over and look at one of these steering wheels, there are so many buttons. There's at least 15 or so. Absolutely. Lots of, some are rotary switches, some are buttons. Of course, there are things like drink button. All the others will affect, say, brake balance or, or different engine modes or different differential modes. And these are very important these days because the cars can't refuel during a race so you start very heavy and you're going to finish very light and that changes enormously the characteristics and the balance of the car so you need to be able to prepare for it but the drivers have got to cope with that as well as coping with their driving all of this at high speed completely and all of this fighting off opposition coming to overtake them and and vice versa and just lastly really at the end of the boulevard here you've got something very different to a car although actually not that different technically we've got a very slick looking bicycle here McLaren Applied Technologies has been set up to exploit some of the Formula 1 technology that's come out into other areas and it makes sense for bicycles people see it but it was great fun to come up with a project that applied principles of of um, finite element analysis the use of the materials, so the carbon fibre, in a certain way in order to provide this and this edge of performance on a bicycle. And you've actually seen quite good results with the bikes to date. Absolutely. We were very lucky to have Mark Cavendish as one of the specialised um, riders last year. And uh, the very first race that this bike came out, um, the San Remo race, was won by Matt Goss on this bike, which was lovely. Caroline Hargrove from McLaren Applied Technologies. And the engineer designing the bikes she showed me is design director Duncan Bradley, who showed me how the design of tour-winning bikes that speed through the finish line is down to the technology F1 is most famous for, telemetry. So telemetry is uh, all about collection of of data and taking information from a piece of equipment through to um, delivering that to an engineer so we can understand what, what's going on. Uh, so in a Formula One world, that would be um, you know, how the engine's performing or the tyres are performing during a race and then maybe altering our strategy accordingly to do that. So a lot of the things that we do on a, a Formula One car, we do on, a, say, a, a bike or an athlete, so your load conditions, the forces that are put through certain materials. Uh, and from that, we're able to then see how well the material... Uh, for instance, is, is performing with those loads and then maybe make a choice on the geometry around that or the material choice itself to make that even um, even more efficient. How is the information actually collected? So you are monitoring, I guess, what speeds and potentially even things about the driver or athlete themselves. Um, how is that done? So yeah, when it comes to the telemetry system itself and we're kind of standing in the workshop where we're actually actually do all that kind of thing now 
we have a series of high-speed data loggers, typically uh, collecting a whole range of sensory information, as well as how the equipment responds, and ultimately, actually, how does the how does that translate into to, into speed? But the, really, the key thing is actually to interpret that data. So, so knowing what to actually do with the information. Yes, indeed. So, um, yeah, certainly, it's you know, some of these systems are extremely complex, and the gains are very small. So, you have to really dig into quite a lot of detail to to really see the insight. And I guess an example here is you've got a section of a bike. We're, in fact, we're surrounded by bikes here. There's, just, there's a box located just underneath the seat. Is this what collects everything about the cyclist and their bike? Well, yes, um, we can mount sensors pretty much anywhere on the body or on the bike. So what we've got here is a, is a modern-day uh, carbon fibre racing bike. For instance, it would be really interesting for, for an athlete to know is how he's power is being that he's putting through the pedals uh, results in speed at the, at the back wheel how the pedals transmit that to the frame how the frame then transmits that to the back wheels but all, all of what happens actually in between so you know in really actually in quite quite high resolution detail what's happening in that composite structure what's happening between the plies of the carbon fiber are they managing the energy uh, in the most efficient way is the bike flexing in the in the correct way and if we understand that, we can then modify that, that structure to be even more efficient and so more energy that the, the rider puts in make, makes it to the back wheel. So you can see here if, the, if the, uh, the athlete pushes down on the pedals, it results in the frame flexing and uh, power being delivered to the rear wheels. And the rear wheel is moving extremely fast, actually. Well, yes, it, it moves extremely fast fast over a very long period of time so if you're in a you know one of the perhaps classic road races you can be racing for 300 kilometers so you don't have to make many improvements to actually be quite a long way ahead at the at the end of the race it's all about marginal gains so how do you really then go to the next stage of working on your designs based on what you've managed to get the information you've managed to get one one area which we've we've done that recently is in um, a time trial aerodynamic helmet where uh, previous designs have been quite based around wind tunnel um, straight head on speed and head on wind um, but actually when we looked into it what's actually was important was how the athlete was moving his head you know the actual real conditions out on the out on the road and out on the track are, are quite different to the the, the really kind of optimum uh, environment of a wind tunnel and by looking at those different types of influences from the environment we're able to change the aerodynamics of the helmet to give a much much better performance over a race distance and is this something that's being used say by the cyclists now say out on tours or in um, or say in the olympics yes yeah, so we have uh, currently the, the helmets being used in the tour de france but we'll make an appearance in in the olympics and how does it really differ I guess um, in terms of say what was accounted for to change the aerodynamics so within that that particular example um, we identified certain areas around the sides of the helmet which significantly reduced uh, the performance of the athlete so with that that project we put a lot of effort into the computational fluid dynamics of the helmet and without being able to understand how that the CFD or the computational fluid dynamics works around the sides of the helmet in detail we would never have come up with the, with the concept so with like a lot of sports it's it's marginal gains you have to put together two or three things of innovation that was just one on the helmet that we you know, managed to find within that, that project. And I guess this can and is being applied to quite a range of sports today. So cycling isn't just the only thing that we're looking at um, within within applied technologies we look at the winter olympic programs as sailing in a sailboat, it's, uh, we have, a, I guess, a, a lot of factors which can affect the performance of a boat. It's not just the equipment itself, but all the 
exterior, environmental conditions, the wave conditions, the wind conditions. And the better you can understand that, the more optimal you can either sail the boat or you can design the structure to, to um, make most of the environmental conditions. So within that industry, we're really looking to actually give very fast, very accurate feedback on the, the sailboat in order for the sailors to really tune and optimise their um, equipment. So cycling and sailing technologies, to name a few, all stemming from the speed and accuracy-driven world of Formula One. That was Duncan Bradley, Design Director at McLaren Applied Technologies. Now, to finish off, we take a look at how science and technology may sometimes take its role in sport a little too far. So far that it's then banned for giving athletes too much of an advantage. This was and is the case for polyurethane swimsuits, which as of the 1st of January 2010 were officially banned from use in official competitions. Jan Anders Manson, head of the Polymers and Composites Laboratory at the École Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne in Switzerland, explains why. We kind of differ between the two different uh, type of uh, sports. Sports where you have an equipment and sports where you don't have an equipment. And swimming is considered as a sport where you don't have an equipment, you have just a dress. And that should not be a major part of the performance of the athlete. In 2008, we start to see a type of suit coming that was a polyurethane suit. They were very high forces in the suit, so they could compress the body to a shape that was more performant. And it was also non-permeable, so if you had air inside the suit, it had difficulty to come out, which could also influence the buoyancy effect. What you always want to have from a swimmer is to have a dolphin-like shape of the body. And of course, when you have a high compression, you can shape your body in an optimal way. And so are these the traits that these new suits were introducing, affecting the swimmer's bodies in this way? primarily influence the shape of the body and also the surface of the suit and the third one is also the air could be trapped between the body and the swimsuit. And what's the material I guess that was enabling these suits to perform in this way and make these changes? You mentioned it's polyurethane but how does this enable such properties? This material is then totally tight a uh, rubber-coated textile that was rubber material covering the whole uh, swimsuit. Air cannot pass through it. And I guess the other difference was that the suit had a lot more material to it, so it actually covered more of the body to allow these changes all over the body. Yeah, exactly. The men and the women had the same type of suit. They covered from knee to shoulder in both cases. In the rules change for men, it's knee to, uh, to navel, and for women, it's a need to shoulder like before. And what kind of um, changes are these making to performance? So they're affecting, I guess, a swimmer's drag in the water and also their buoyancy, which must make quite a difference to their swimming performance. Yeah, so that's uh, the three effects. It was the drag, the floating position, and also the shape of the body. Were there any, say, figures as to how much of a difference this could make? So say in the championships where they were used, how much difference did we see? It's difficult to say in time, for it's depending on distance. But we saw higher effect on shorter distances, so 50 and 100 metres, and less on long distance, like 800 and 1500 metres. And uh, 
following the record evolution in many sports that have no equipment involved, we talk about at 1% over four years. It's about uh, record evolution. We see the athletes having elite athletes. And uh, swimming was laying around 0.81% over the last 50 years, the performance increase. But during the last two years, the 2008-2009, we start to see uh, it was up to 1% over one year, a considerable uh, performance increase when these suits were introduced. Why did these suits make a, a bigger difference, say, to shorter distances? Because surely even for longer-distance swims, being able to move faster is still important. What the, the suit helped the muscle corset of the athlete. It helped them to... Uh, it could replace some of the stomach muscle to help them to keep uh, a horizontal uh, position in the water. When you got tired and the stomach muscle got tired, you sink down with your... Uh, your bottom part of the body, which is uh, increased the drag. Second issue is uh, if you have air trapped under the suit, it will uh, diffuse out with time. But in the beginning of the race, it had a, had a more uh, more influence. So when they're not actually in the water for longer, it has a greater impact. Exactly. Why was this suit, say, the cutoff? So we've seen changes in swimsuits used by professional athletes over many years. So kind of shark skin-based suits were incorporated and various mm-hmm. other techni- technologies have been used. I guess, why was the line drawn here, the polyurethane? For a reason, it was absolutely tight. And it was very, very high forces that could be introduced in the suit. It could really compress the body to uh, even out all differences in the body shape, and the air couldn't come out that was under the suit. And so what's the situation now then? What kind of suit is allowed, and what limit of technology is acceptable now? The suit have to be made of a textile material. Textile material, it means when you stretch it, it opens up holes in the so air can come out. There is no plastic allowed to be put on top of the textile. They have to be thinner in thickness, the textile. That also uh, limits some of the the compression forces that you could put on the body. Is there an actual thickness measurement that's been set? Yes, the thickness is 0.8 millimetre. And the permeability of the textile has to be more than 80 litre per square metre, so how much air can get through the textile. And then there is a buoyancy requirement on the textile material as well. It it can't be uh, too light. And uh, this is done also in close discussion with the manufacturer. We we meet with them regularly as well as with the athletes and the coaches. This year, the London 2012 Olympics will be the first Olympics then since this ban has been incorporated and introduced. Mm. What difference do you expect to see to the swimmers and their performance this year? I don't expect to see as many world records as we have maybe been used to. Just to give you some uh, example, in Rome, I think we had 26 world records, and that was 2009. In the World Championship 2011 in Shanghai, we had one on 1,500 meters. So, uh, yes, it has uh, hold back the times slightly, but this is just a matter of time until the athletes' capability have uh, regain that uh, difference. So I'm, I, I expect to see some world record, but not the same amount maybe as we have seen in the previous Olympics.
Jan Anders Manson from the École Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne. Now, that's all we have time for this week, looking into the various ways science and technology is helping and occasionally hindering athletic ability and the world records we see broken in every competition. I'm Mira Senthilingam, and as you now watch the London 2012 Games, be sure to look out for the numerous physiologists, engineers and other scientists who've helped the athletes make it to the start line. The Naked Scientists podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. 